Well, good morning. Let me ask you once again to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. You'll find that on page 857 if you need to use a Bible from the back of the, or from the wire rack under the seat that's in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to follow along. I'm just going to try to explain what this passage means by what it says. You can, of course, look it up online on your phone, Bible app, whatever you'd like. And here we are, friends. We've almost made it. It's one more day. Kids, glad you're up here with us this morning. What day is tomorrow? I could barely hear you. You didn't even know I was going to talk to you. Said with great joy. Adults, what day is tomorrow? Said with profound relief. Right? As Kermit the Frog sings in that greatest of Christmas movies, The Muppet Christmas Carol, there's one more sleep till Christmas. So here we are right on the cusp, but man, it's been a long time in coming, hasn't it? Uh, we, we, we get to Thanksgiving, or in some places, Labor Day, and the Christmas signs start to appear. You know, the, the, the lights and the trees and the presents start piling up under under the tree and, and Christmas parties and Christmas programs come and go and Christmas break finally arrives and then the week of and then the day before and then the night before and then the day of, Christmas Day. And I apologize if I just triggered all of your holiday anxieties by going back through that. That was for the kids. And here we are after this long wait. There's a story a little bit like that in Luke chapter 2, our text for today. This long-anticipated moment finally comes. It's actually a moment directly connected with Christmas. There's this long wait, there's this big build-up, this anticipation, and then finally the moment. Now, it's the moment for one guy. Luke 2.25 introduces us to a character named Simeon who's in the Bible for 10 verses and then totally disappears. All we read about him is this one little bit. But his story offers us three often overlooked gifts of Christmas. Three often overlooked Christmas gifts that are handed to us in the story that if we will take them into our life, if we will unwrap them and make them the center of who we are, what we do, what we think, how we approach life, they'll transform everything. If we understand them correctly and respond to them appropriately. Three gifts. Christmas in this story gives us a goal to live for, a goal to live for, a hope to trust in, and a test to see if you've actually ever met the real Jesus. Christmas in this story offers us a goal to live for, a hope to trust in, and a test to see if you've actually ever met the real Jesus. I'm just gonna go through the story and show you, in turn, where each one of those gifts is offered us. But before we look at it, let me just say to you directly, if you're discouraged about your life, if, if you feel like, Generally speaking, your life is filled with loss of joy, not the joy that Christmas promises and everybody else seems to have. If, if, you're, if your future looks to you boring or discouraging or dreadful, there's actually really good news in this story. If you're concerned about the condition of the world today and who isn't, right? I mean, if you've been paying attention to anything, 
There's strong reason for hope in this story. Matter of fact, the only reason for real hope. There's a hope for the world that comes to us from outside ourselves, from God. God's done for us something that we could never do for ourselves, according to this story. It's possible that you're sitting here this morning and you're just not sure about any of this stuff. You're not sure about Christianity. You're not sure about God. You're not sure about Jesus. You like Christmas, but you don't know about all the religious stuff and you're here with family or friends or just because it's the day. Thank you for being here. Sincerely, I mean that. It's an honor to us that you would spend part of Christmas with us. It's an honor to me that you would sit there and listen as I try to explain this passage from the Bible. What what I want to say to you is that this story challenges you and all of us, not just you, but all of us, with the most important question that you will ever face. Who exactly is Jesus of Nazareth and what does that mean for you? All right, so let's look at it. Let's jump into this story. The first thing we see is that Christmas offers us a goal for your life. Look at verse 22, we'll start there. Before we ever meet this guy, Simeon, Luke draws our attention to that little family who have been the focus of the rest of this chapter. We met Mary and Joseph in verses four and five. We hear about this baby that was born in verses six and seven. There's this surprise announcement that comes from another realm, angels. They appear to shepherds who go and greet the baby in verses 15 and following. But to be sure we realize this isn't a fairy tale, Look at verses one through three, one through four. Luke roots all of this in history. He gives names and places. The census that Caesar Augustus took when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It took place in Nazareth and Bethlehem. All of this took place leading up to Christmas day as we know it. And the events of our text here in verse 22, they take place about a month later. The law of Moses placed several obligations on a devout family about what they should do after a woman gave birth, especially to her firstborn, firstborn son. That's what's going on in these verses, verse 22. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's baby, baby Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Just real quickly, there are two things going on in these verses, purification and dedication. Purification for Mary, dedication for the baby. The law required both. Leviticus chapter 12 describes the post-delivery purification ritual that a mom needed to go through, a new mother needed to go through, and it was it involved like a 30-day waiting period and after the birth of a boy. And then eight days before that, or, or, or for the first eight days, eight days after he was born, he circumcised. So you put that together. This is like 40 days after Jesus was born. Mary goes and does this purification ceremony. That's verse 22. The law also stipulated that every firstborn son belonged to God. That's Exodus 12. And in Leviticus 12, it describes the offering that was made, the exchange of an animal's life for the child. The parents could keep the child, God wouldn't take take the child, as long as they exchanged an animal for this baby. That's what verses uh, 23 and 24 describe. But I want you to notice the repetition. Do you see it? 
Verse 22, 23, 24, they all use almost the same phrase, according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, according to what is said in the law of the Lord. The Holy Spirit through Luke is carefully pointing out these people are doing exactly what God required. Why? Because Gabriel had told Mary this child would be holy. And before he could ever make a choice for himself, before he ever made any decisions, had any conscious thoughts, his parents were keeping him holy and blameless according to the law. That's what's going on. This child is holy. All of that highlighting his specialness, his significance. But now in verse 25, Luke introduces another devout individual. This is that guy, Simeon. Look at that, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It's a fascinating sentence, isn't it? Your mind just bursts with questions. Like, why this guy? And what would that have been like? But Luke draws our attention to several other qualities. Matter of fact, look at them. There's four Four qualities of his life plus one tantalizing detail about his past. He was righteous. means he behaved properly toward people. He was devout. He behaved properly toward God. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Old Testament had promised that there would be comfort for God's people when the Messiah finally showed up. That's what that means. Consolation of Israel. Comfort for God's people. He was waiting for that. Then this phrase, the Holy Spirit was upon him. And the next verse unpacks that a little bit. In fact, the Holy Spirit had revealed to him he wouldn't meet the Messiah. He he wouldn't die until he had met the Messiah. Don't miss the significance of that. For 400 years, God's people had been waiting in silence. The last of the prophets was four centuries prior to this. And they had just waited with all these promises, this expectation this hope, but no fulfillment. But in Luke chapter one, the silence ends, doesn't it? An angel, Gabriel, appears to Zechariah and tells him he and his wife are finally gonna have a baby. And then Gabriel appears to Mary and the silence is broken again. Word from God is finally coming. Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, meets Mary and she speaks filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is moving again. The angel appears out of the sky to these shepherds. And here, Simeon has been told by the Holy Spirit, four centuries of silence are now being punctuated with all sorts of word from God. Aslan is on the move. Something amazing is happening. This hasn't happened for generations. And now it's happening again. And notice exactly what the Spirit said to Simeon. You personally will get to see the Messiah before you die. What would that have been like for that guy? Right? How many years did he live with that knowledge? Was he told that when he was a young guy? Was he told that just a couple weeks before this? I don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. But what would it have been like knowing that you were guaranteed by God to get to do the number one item on your bucket list? What would that have been like? 
I'll bet you he woke up every day thinking, I wonder if it's gonna be today. And if not, I know I get to live till tomorrow. Like I would have been awful with that knowledge. I never would have observed speed limits. I would have been like, I haven't seen the Messiah yet. I can drive as fast as I want. <laughs> Apparently Simeon, that might be why Luke tells us that Simeon was righteous and devout. You know, he did what was good for people and what God expected of him. He was responsible with this information. What a privilege though, living every day, knowing you will see Jesus. Luke, the master storyteller, has set all of this up. He tells us about the devout family in the first few verses and this devout Simeon. And I wonder how this is gonna go. He wants to bring them together now. Sets up the encounter. Look at how it happened, verse 27. Simeon came in the spirit into the temple. Luke's already told us that Jesus and Mary and Joseph are there. And sure enough, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Oh my goodness. This is so funny to me because Luke records no introductions, no request for permission. Simeon just grabs this baby and holds him and starts like singing to God. Now, it's possible and, and historical tradition tells us, we don't know this because the Bible doesn't say it, so we don't know for sure, but historical tradition tells us that Simeon could have been a priest. So maybe he was the one that Mary and Joseph brought the baby to for the dedication ceremony and told him and the Holy Spirit tipped him off. So maybe they had, we, we don't know. All Luke, Luke wants to paint this picture in our minds of this, this couple walking through the temple and, and, and Simeon walking up to them and getting hold of this baby and just bursting out with this song. And in Greek and Latin, both, the first word of the song, the first word out of his mouth is the word now. It's sort of like he's just going, finally, it might read like this, now, Lord, you can let me die in peace. This is the long-awaited moment, the culmination of all his hopes and dreams, everything he's wanted, and his life is fulfilled. All of God's promises are right here. The moment he took, and he says, Lord, now you can let your servant depart in peace. The moment he held this baby, his soul was filled with peace because this has been his lifelong preoccupation, the focus of his daily thoughts. And now his life's fulfilled. He says, you can let your servant depart in peace. In other words, he's accomplished everything he set out to do. This was it. Checked it all off. This was the last thing. He's satisfied, ready to die. And so that just makes me wonder, as we look at this guy's story, what's your life's passion? What is the one thing that if you get that done, you can say, Lord, I can die in peace. My life's been worthwhile. It's been valuable for me. There, there's a wall in our kitchen right across from the sink, which is in the island. We look out at it, this huge, you know, 17 foot high wall or whatever it is. And, and on it is a picture of our family. And then the individual photos of our, of our kids when they graduated from high school. I will often wash my hands or get a drink or fill my water bottle at that sink and look at that wall and go, if that's all I ever do in my life, I've done pretty well. 
Thank God. I don't mean I've done well. Uh, my life has been meaningful. God has given me a rich, fulfilled life. Look at those people. That's, that's, that's one of the things for me. This was Simeon's one big thing. I wonder what it is that gives you that reason you live, that thing you're looking forward to. That, that, I, I wonder if you realize that Simeon's passion is actually supposed to be the normal passion of every Christian, living to see Jesus someday. I mean, that's actually given to us as the standard hope of Christians. Let me read you a few verses. 1 Corinthians 1, 7. We wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 13. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing in glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John writes in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. Because we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Someday, you will see Jesus, every one of you. And for Christians, this is meant to be what drives us every single day. Young people, there's nothing worse than setting your life's goal on something that's not worth that kind of value. Nothing worse than that. Can you imagine laboring and working and becoming the best in your field and getting all the way to the top of that ladder and then realizing this doesn't actually satisfy me the way that I had hoped? Do you know that our culture is filled with personal testimonies of people like that? People that you know of? LeBron James, after his very first championship, said, what really got to me was how short of a time it lasted. The championship lasts like that. The confetti rains, you go in the locker room, pop the champagne, do the media, have a parade, and then it's over. It's over. And in that comment, LeBron just doubles down and says, all I want to do now is get more of those. The point being, because that didn't satisfy. Chris Hemsworth, the actor, is a little more transparent. Chris Hemsworth said, you go to Hollywood, you achieve something, and then you realize, shoot, it didn't actually bring me the happiness that I thought it was going to. It didn't fix anything. Look, I mean, I don't wake up, look in the mirror and go, yep, your life is all perfect. So friends, how about this as an alternative goal for your life? Rather than one of those achievements in your career or popularity or fame or a championship or whatever it is, how about this? That you will someday see Jesus. Eyeball to eyeball. You will stand there in his presence and it will be, the, the whole room will be filled with glory and reality, as real as the people in this room and more. So you will stand before him and, and beauty and kindness will just be radiating from him, filling the whole room. There will be love so strong you can feel it down to your toenails in the tips of your hair. Everything about him just emanates love and kindness and grace and goodness if you are his. And you'll be there. You and him. How about living for that moment? And then add to it this. You don't need to wait for that moment to get to know him. You don't need to wait for that moment to grow in a love relationship with him. He offers you that right now. And for you older folks, one thing I've noticed in 25 years of pastoral ministry is how sad it is to age. 
There are blessings with aging, but there are so many losses. So many losses. Almost everything that life gave you as a younger person, it takes away if you get old enough. You either die before it all happens, or you lose all of those friends that you've had since elementary school, high school, and college. Your marriage ends either with a tragic divorce or death. The ability to do all the things that you so greatly enjoy starts to slip away and you see it in the people that you love. Life is just one loss after another, isn't it? And it can make older people wonder, why am I still here? This is miserable. There's no purpose to me or to this. Friends, what about this? Simeon was an old guy. He woke up every single day knowing he would see Jesus someday and wondering if today would be the day. What if that filled your heart? I'm not trying to be sentimental about this at all. I'm not trying to be sappy. Remember how Simeon put it? Look at the verse. Now your servant can depart in peace. Imagine having that view of death. When I die, I will depart in peace. Life is the struggle. He uses this word for depart. It's one of the first verbs that Greek students learn. Luo. It's loosed. Now your servant, you can release me in peace, God. Life is the struggle. This plane is the, is the agony, is the burden, is the, is the service. That is peace and rest forever and ever. Friends, again, I'm not trying to be sappy. I, I remember a few years ago sitting on the bedside of Ralph Whitlock as he died of COVID. 94 years old, almost 95. One of the oldest, well, obviously the oldest member of our church and one of the longest standing church members, veteran of the battles of Guam and Iwo Jima, an electrician that couldn't get off a ladder. Even when he was in his 90s, he's fixing light bulbs in our parking lot. Just a, just a, a champion of a human being. And as I sat there on his bed and talked to them about what he knew was coming, this was his testimony. He's like, Josh, I know this is it, but here's what I know. I'm going to go to sleep, and when I wake up, I'm going to see Jesus. There's nothing sentimental about that at all, right? Nothing sappy. This is what drove him. This is what could drive you. This is one of the main gifts that Christmas gives us. An actual goal for your life, a reason to live, a thing to look forward to every day. But Christmas secondly gives us a hope to trust in. Look at what Simeon says about this Messiah. He wasn't some sentimental religious old fool. Look at what he's hoping in. Verse 29, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Just look at that description. I just want to go through this almost phrase by phrase. He literally calls this baby God's salvation. Salvation is rescue, isn't it? Deliverance from harm. He says it's found in this little baby. Verse 31, he says this is a person speaking to God that you have prepared Think about that. For hundreds of years, God was preparing the world for a Messiah, wasn't he? He did it partly in obvious ways through Rome, uniting the world, common language, kind of Hellenizing the known world, giving them that common culture. But mostly he was preparing the world through Israel. 
their sacrificial system taught us about sin and the cost of forgiveness. That priesthood taught us how wonderful it was to have a go-between who would stand in for us before God and represent to us the ways of God. The law gave the world through Israel the year of jubilee, which showed us the generous, joyful heart of God after which all debts would be forgiven and during which all the slaves would be set free. Why? Because God's heart for his people longs for their freedom. How do we know that? Through the way he was preparing the world through Israel. All those festivals, they taught us to demonstrate, they, they, they demonstrated for us that God loves nothing more than a good party and he wants us to be filled with gratitude to him. Israel was preparing. This didn't just happen this moment. God did this. He prepared the world for this. Even more amazing is what Simeon says next. Look at the next phrase. In the presence of all peoples. This wasn't a thing meant to happen in a corner. It's not just for the Jews. Jesus isn't an ethnic God. He set out there before all, made available to all, intended for all. He's salvation. In other words, for the whole world. And verse 32 puts it all in a word picture. Look at it. Light. Salvation as light for revelation to Gentiles and glory to Israel. What does it mean to say salvation is light? Well, it means the kind of rescue we need is the kind that light can provide. Deliverance from darkness. What kind of darkness? What, what is he talking about? What kind of darkness are we under? Well, Luke's gospel, we don't learn it just from this story. But the rest of Luke's gospel goes on to show us three different types of darkness that we're under. One of them is just across the page. In Luke 1.79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's the darkness of fallenness, the darkness of curse. It's over all the world. There's disease in this world. There's war, poverty, oppression, homelessness, hunger, loneliness, strife, unreasonableness, right? All of these things we, we experience just as humans living in a fallen world. And it's been turned, all of that, all of that curse has actually been turned into a commercial business. It's called the 24-hour news cycle. They make money off of all of the horrors happening in our world. It's darkness, isn't it? We need to be saved from that. But there's another kind of darkness there's darkness that shows up just before Jesus goes to the cross in Luke 22, verse 53. He says to the devil, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Some of the evil in this world is supernaturally generated. We don't just do this to ourselves. There are horrors that people perpetrate on other people that can't come from themselves. They have to come from supernatural evil. They're so awful. And you can probably think of some. Some of you might have experienced some. That's the darkness of supernatural evil. And we need to be delivered from that, saved from that. We need light for that. When Jesus goes to the cross, there's a third experience of darkness or a third type of darkness that shows up in Luke's gospel, isn't there? He hangs on the cross and, and the scripture says that for 
for, for, for six hours, there's darkness while he's hanging on the cross. What is that? It's a symbol of the judgment of God coming down on Jesus because he's bearing sin. It's the darkness of judgment. And we know, don't you? You might not even be a Christian, but you might not even believe in God, but I'll bet you know that if there is a God, he would have good reason to be displeased with you. How do I know that? Because the vast majority of people and all of the honest ones aren't even pleased with themselves. So why would a divine being who's perfectly righteous look at you and go, hey, good job. You didn't live up to your own standards and you made mad a whole lot of other people around you, but you were good enough for me. Super unlikely, right? No, in fact, there is judgment from the God who exists and it comes down in darkness. That's what we need to be saved from. That's what Simeon is singing about. And all of our Christmas carols sing about this, don't they? Deliverance from curse, joy to the world. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's light from that darkness, isn't it? How about the darkness of Satan's power? God rest, ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Why? To save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. We, we just sing this stuff without thinking. And Simeon waited his whole life to see that kind of light and salvation in Jesus. We've got, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. This is why Simeon was so excited to see this child, because he was salvation. He was light and revelation and glory, deliverance from the wrath of God, and deliverance from the devil, and deliverance from curse. How? the cross. That's how he did it all. He took sin on himself and endured the darkness of God's judgment. On the cross, he surrendered himself to the power of Satan and died. On the cross, he took all the evil in this world into his own body and it crushed him. All the curse that doesn't sound like deliverance, does it? Well, that's because the whole story of the cross is not just death. Death led to resurrection. And resurrection is victory, isn't it? That's when the light starts to shine. The darkness won on Friday. The light won on Sunday. That's what was happening. Resurrection proves that Jesus conquered sin and Satan and curse. And the light, as it always does, overcame the darkness. Friends, this is one of the gifts that Christmas offers us that we often overlook. The only real hope for the healing of the world. That's what Jesus offers in his resurrection. But there's a third gift and it's a test to see if you know the real Jesus. Look at verse 33. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. But Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall 
and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Wow, not only is that a confusing message, it's troubling. It brings all this conflict into this wonderful Christmas story. Simeon says that Jesus is bringing salvation, which is light and deliverance from all those forms of darkness. But then he brings this word to Mary. And it's this Christmas gift that if we will take it into the center of our lives, it might be the most meaningful at all because Christmas offers you a a test to see if you've actually ever really met the real Jesus. Do you see all the conflict language in what Simeon said to Mary? Appointed for the fall and rising of many. There's controversy over Jesus, isn't there? Some people stumble and are brought low. Other people rise because of him. Why? Well, there's also this conflict language, a sign that is opposed. What is this child a sign of? Signs in the Bible are always, if, if not more, they're always at minimum an indication that God is working here. Jesus is a sign that God has shown up and not everybody wants that. He says to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. What he means is that Jesus, yes, comes to bring peace, but he brings the kind of peace that can only be achieved with a sword. And there are times where that has to be done, aren't there? I mean, you guys have all heard the story, most of you, of, of, of Bill Cornwell, one of our church members, who uh, works out all the time, tries to help other people stay healthy through his job as a cardiologist at Anschutz and then discovers that he has two pretty large tumors growing in his brain. And suddenly there was no peace. He realized there was no future of good health unless this gets dealt with. How did it get dealt with? Some pretty serious cutting, some pretty aggressive attack. Praise God, all healed. But it took a sword. Um, About a month ago, early part of December, it's brought to our attention every year that we've hit the anniversary of Pearl Harbor and that the world was at war. And how did the war war end and how was there peace? By nations banding together and bringing a sword. Jesus comes to bring a sword in order to achieve that peace. What is this sword? What is this division? Why, if he's bringing healing to the world, is he divisive to people? Because so many people have noticed Jesus, in Jesus you find two things combined, which are really unusual. These unbelievably audacious claims with this irresistible, winsome life. There have been a lot of people who said boneheaded, crazy, wild things, but they didn't live in a way that compelled anybody to follow them. There have been a lot of people that have made really nice, warm claims. Uh, Excuse me. I got that wrong. There have been a lot of people who have lived a really nice warm life and been approachable and gracious, but they never made any audacious claims. And Jesus has both. He made insane claims. You can't just accept the Jesus of the Bible unless you recognize what he said. Like, do you remember his moment with the rich young ruler? That guy came to him and said, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus said, you have to sell everything you have and follow me. Gandhi never said that. And then Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, people will come to me and say, 
Lord, Lord, we've done all these amazing things. And he will say to them, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. So you don't get heaven according to Jesus unless he knows you and you obey him. Or remember the time that Jesus was talking to all of his followers and he said, unless you hate your mother and father and children and even your own life, you can't follow me? That's absolutely audacious. So Jesus said these incredibly audacious things and then he lived this winsome, warm life where outsiders and non-religious people loved to be around him. He offered forgiveness of sins to scandalous sinners. He did absolutely shocking things. And when people come up against the real Jesus, it puts a sword right through their soul. This is, this is how Simeon says it at the end. Look at this last phrase, and then I'm done. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The sword that went through Mary's soul was the cross, and the cross is the thing that reveals the thoughts of many hearts. The cross shows you what you actually think about yourself and about God. The cross shows you that God actually does love you because he put Jesus forward so that he could have you. And I've said this to dozens of people before and sometimes they're offended if they're not following God, but I wanna say this to you here, not trying to offend you, but just challenge you to think about this. So many people say they believe in a God of love, but they don't want to follow him, which shows that they don't actually believe in a God of love. If you truly believed that God loved you and wanted what was best for you and put his son forward for you, wouldn't you trust him? Wouldn't you surrender everything to him? See, the cross demonstrates that God loves you. And if you trust Jesus, it reveals that you trust that God is loving. If you don't trust and follow Jesus, if you won't surrender everything to Jesus, it reveals that you don't actually believe that God is love. Likewise, the cross reveals who we are. It reveals the truth about what you think. It reveals the truth of what you think about yourself. Do you need that kind of atoning sacrifice or do you think you're good enough? Do you think that God should accept you just as you are? That, that's, what, that's what Simeon means. The thoughts of many hearts are revealed through that sword, through the cross. What you believe about God, what you believe about you. And so Christmas comes to you and extends this invitation, this gift, this opportunity, this test to see if you've really met the real Jesus. It's through him that the hope for the world's healing comes, and it's in him that we find the real purpose and goal of all of our lives, that we would see him. So what about you? Have you taken these three gifts into your life, unwrapped them, and brought them into the very center of who you are? I hope you will this Christmas. In Jesus, uh, and let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these things to heart, to believe them, to recognize that they're true and that you would help us all to have, as we reflect on this talk, these true gifts of Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.